0: Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. A series of dry springs combined with a problem with potential carryover of a soybean herbicide in the 1980s inspired Rogers, Nebraska grower Ed Neeson to make some tillage equipment changes. Using a modified Lister planting system, Neeson got through the challenging times, and realizing he could raise good crops without buying new discs and field cultivators, he became an accidental no-tiller. One of the greatest benefits Neeson has seen as a result of no-tilling has been being able to buy more land instead of buying equipment. Now managing nearly 3,000 acres, most of it owned, he credits no-till as the foundation of his success. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lessiter talks with Ed about some of those equipment decisions he's made over the years, including why he switched to 20-inch rows and why he usually doesn't buy new equipment, but did buy a new self-propelled sprayer, as well as some of his other successful practices, like cutting out starter fertilizer using untreated seed, planting soybeans earlier, and much more. Here are Frank and Ed Neeson.
1: How many acres are you farming today? Uh, just a little bit under 3,000 okay. acres. And
2: uh, so I'll, most of it's my wife's uh, mine. We'd, we bought land, and I also farm some for my brothers because mm-hmm. we bought some land together with them. Well, the land is awful high priced now, so I don't, you know, it's come down maybe just a little bit, but the good land hasn't come down very much in this area at all. Right. And uh, the other day they was trying to get me enthused about a bin the site, you know, plant our, you know, because we've got trouble in the fall, we don't have enough storage. Sure. But we own the town and do some forward selling, so, you know, so we don't have to sell it, all of it right at harvest, you know, so... That's been working fairly well, but we're about 35 miles from the elevators. We got some semis, which helps. Right. But, but anyway, this pricing a bin site and with our land tax and property tax and stuff, I thought, that just don't make much sense at all. In the <laughs> In the mid-70s, I wanted to put up a leg and, and some bins, and, and my uh, uh, dad just did his best to talk me out of that. He says, just don't do it. He had built a cement corn crib. that were made at Fremont, mm-hmm. Nebraska crib and silo. It was kind of a a stave thing with driveway through the center and a ear corn leg inside. Yeah. Bins, overhead bins on top, you know, in the center. It was the Cadillac of the thing in 1954 when he built it. Mm-hmm. And he was so proud of that thing that about 1960, we was going to uh, Picker-Shellers. You know, yeah, putting the sheller right, attachment right. on the back of the picker. Yeah. And me. Anyway, all of a sudden, in about six years, this corn crib was obsolete. <laughs> all right. And uh, he says, I don't know what's going to happen, but he says, if you build one of them things, he's, you know, a leg and some bins, he says, that'll be obsolete before too long. So instead of putting up a leg and some bins, I... I bought some more land. There you go. Which, which helped, but, you know, land was cheaper at the time, you know. Right, right. And, and we had a lot of hogs. But we never built much for facilities, all homemade facilities and stuff for the hogs. So the the hogs was uh, making the land payment. And then uh, I had a friend that did go ahead. He raised hogs, but he had a slatted floor firming house and all that kind of stuff. And he says, I never once dreamt. To have a tandem dimensional truck or a semi, so he built a, a leg with for a 300 bushel pit, which the single axle farm trucks were about hauling about 300 bushels. Mm. So he thought that was great. Put 4,000 bushel bins in a horseshoe shape with this leg and backed in with this truck. He it worked great for a couple of years. <laughs> so, well, then we got a tandem axle semi,
3: yeah.
2: and then we wanted a semi we couldn't even drive through the leg. He said, and the, we put 4,000 bushel bins around. He said, the leg wasn't tall enough, wasn't big enough. He said, that was one of the worst mistakes I ever did was put up that leg. And uh, he said, I should have bought some land like you did. And, and our machinery is, well, it's adequate, but it's nothing nothing great to this day. And my wife always reminds me, she says, when I get the idea, she says, uh, you know, we never paid for land by buying machinery. And I guess I can credit a lot of that a no till. I, I kinda got in it by accident, you know, back with the scepter stuff was uh kind of a, an accident. It seemed to work and by buying my own land I didn't have to answer to no uh, uh landlords. So right. the original stuff that I land he was for no till. He thought it was great because he even told me when I rented it, he says, Don't plow he said that's a half inch of water. Every time you plant, he says you got a pretty good disc. He says disc it twice and plant it. And then when we went to no-till, you know, some of that for a while didn't look very good. A lot of trash and stuff. Another guy was telling me that he was at the coffee shop and they was giving him all kinds of static about his render. That boy's sure a trash farmer, and you know. It doesn't look real good. and right. And uh, this guy just answered him back. He says, get a good share of rent. So he says, what do I care what, you, what it looks
3: like? Right.
2: So I had a, a good landlord. And then while my dad, he was for the no-till. You know, when he started out, all he had was an H and a two-row John Deere 730 Lister. Hmm. And, you know, was listing everything. So then, well, then we started getting better tractors. Then we started plowing the some, but he never was a real fan of plowing. So he, when I was, you know, wanted to go, or like when we went full bore, no till, he was, you know, right for me, or, you know, he was right with me. He didn't criticize me or when things didn't quite work right. And this, this landlord was the same way. He was, they were, I guess, supportive would be the word, I should. Right.
1: That reminds me of a story back in the 70s with some people who had landlords who let them no-till, but they weren't totally sold on it. And this farmer... I think he was from Maryland, told me that when the landlord would come around in June or so and say, let's go look at the, the, my field, and he said it looked ugly, and he said, I would say to him, you know, it would be a good day to go fishing, and he said, I'd take those guys fishing, and then then when July 4th came around, the field started looking good, and it was okay to show them to him, but if you showed them <laughs> earlier, they'd say, my God, this is ugly.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh-huh. Yeah, I, I one time I was at a local bank, I uh, was doing a balance sheet in about June or something, and the, the bank officer said, that one field, he drove by it, and he says, that really looks ugly. <laughs>
3: and
2: I says, well, maybe it does, I guess, but, but it was my own field. And I guess as long as I made the payments at the bank, they didn't really care, right. you know. Right. So anyway, uh, I kind of owe a lot to no-till. Because of that three thousand, well, it's not quite three thousand acres, but my wife and I own over fifteen hundred acres of it, and then my brothers own some, and then uh, well, I guess I and my mother-in-law owned a little bit, and we're in the, she died, so we're in the process of inheriting that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So i um, and if how if it wouldn't have been for no till, if I'd have been some buying a machinery or putting up these legs and stuff like that, I wouldn't I wouldn't have it. Now, maybe that's just a stroke of luck, uh, for a young guy to be buying land now. I uh, I don't know.
1: It's kinda of fascinating how you have uh, used no till and not having to buy new equipment all the time to to expand and get more land.
2: Well I thought it was more important that like right now if I would uh if I would go to the coffee shop and say, I'm going to retire,
3: mm-hmm.
2: i bet I wouldn't have to buy coffee. Right. <laughs> I'm, nobody. Okay. And if I got a leg sitting here and I'd say, well, I want to rent the leg out or I, I got a, a couple year old combine and a planner here. If, if You know, any of you guys want to buy a combine or lease it? All right. No, maybe somebody would be accidentally be in there that would want to give you a a few cents a bushel for a leg, you know,
1: to store some grain. But if the guy was was interested, you'd have to buy their coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: yeah, to get him to be
1: sure to do it, I'd have
2: to buy his coffee. Uh, That uh, if if you want to quit or come to retirement, but right now I got a son that's you know, interested. So that might not happen. But right. if something would happen to my wife and I, we're kind of at the point that we might have too much for him. Mm-hmm. And you know, he'd be by himself then. Well, um, we says, well, you can, you can keep the rented ground and uh, rent some of our own ground out. Yeah. And then, then if you ever need it back, you can. Because we got we're spread out a little bit, so we got some of the further off that you could just rent it out. And then if his son, he's got three boys right. that are, well, they're grade school. That you know, if as they grow up and stuff, and what they can always take that ground back, you know. And I don't know what he's going to do when the machinery gets wore out. I guess just look for uh, some used piece somewhere because uh, my dad was, uh, well, he is quite a bit German, and he loved home butchering. Growing up, that's all we ever did. We, I didn't know they sold meat in the grocery store. Cause we, <laughs> you know. But anyway, he used to go up into South Dakota. There was some butcher shop or sold butchering equipment, some used butchering equipment. Mm-hmm. And then this guy on his business card, he he says, Once you you buy a new piece of equipment and you use it one time, it becomes used equipment. It's not new anymore. It's used. Right. You get to use it new one time. And then uh, the same thing is logic that once you buy machinery, a combine or tractor, planter, you use it once and it's used. Right. So, anyway, that's kind of what I try to live by, but I don't always. Sometimes I broke down and bought some new stuff, too, you know.
1: I think you had the right approach and invest in land and land's never going to go away and it's always probably going to increase most years in value. So what are you using uh, for a planter today?
2: What do you have? I got it for the corn. I got a 1265. It's a 36 row 20 inch planter. And that was one piece that I bought new. What brand is this? It's the case I ate. Okay, gotcha. And then uh, we bought a used uh, planter then for starting with Beano to try to plant beans the same time we're planting corn. Mm -hmm. We uh, bought a used 24-row, it's a 1240 case planter, 20-inch rows. I was 15-inch rows for a few years, and um, I liked it. But then um, for buying machinery, for used stuff, they're just, well, there's not many manufacturers that make new 15-inch stuff. And even fewer, or, you know, the use was, and I, thought, I wanted to get wider mm-hmm. and bigger. So and I thought, you know, 15 inch would be a white elephant if I wanted to sell it or, or, you know, got to retirement or something like that. So I thought 20 inch was more more practical. You'd have some resale value because you, you go up north into the Dakotas and Minnesota with their sugar beets and stuff. I think it seemed like 20 inches. Right. Kind of.
1: A lot of these sugar beet guys have been in 22 inch rows for a long time, too, so you're right in the ballpark with them.
2: And also, the 20 inch we can spray a little easier. Now, my wife does all the spraying, she does pretty good. She knocks some corn down, but uh, this is another thing we we bought a new sprayer that was one of the fewer items. Uh, we got a, a nitro or a miller, and we've got a 120 foot boom on it, which I don't think we really need it 120 foot, but that way we got less passes through the field. Right. So right. if you knock some down, and then everybody always says, "Well, go crosswise." Well, that was she tried that a couple times, and she don't like that. Right. That um, it's rougher. You know, when you no-till know and you all drive a combine or green car, you make a little depression. It don't seem like much. You think it's fine, but if you go across that with a sprayer, you know, you got the narrow tires on that sprayer, and the boom up, I don't know, it just starts bouncing, and then the, uh, she likes to go twice around the field, because uh, it's pretty hard to turn a machine on its same width, you need about two passes to make a nice turn with planter, drill, everything, and that way the boom don't swing out over the road or swing into a high line pole right. and all that kind of stuff. So she makes two rounds. Well if you got an eighty acre field with a hundred and twenty foot boom, you make two rounds, you only got three and a half rounds left. <laughs>
3: the long way. So
2: you know if you start going crossways you're gonna you're gonna be knocking more down on your turns.
3: Exactly. You know?
2: right, right, So um you know not that we really needed a hundred and twenty foot boom, but we thought we'd have less passes and that we'd be Less corn not down. Mm-hmm. So the 20-inch works better than the 15, obviously, for spraying. And, she's, well, she goes about five or six miles an hour. First, when we bought that sprayer, we got the pulsating boom on it. And who's was having trouble with it. Well, it was the first pulsating they put on a on a nitro sprayer that, I guess, they put them on the Patriots before, but not on us. So we was having a lot of problems with it. And then when it come down to it, finally they figured out she ain't driving fast enough.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It was designed for like the co-ops that go 12, 13, 14 miles an hour. And, uh, so they got, then when they got on that, well, there's still some other things wrong, but they finally changed the nozzles about three times and got her down to where she can go up to five or six miles an hour. Cause well, we got some pivot tracks and sometimes they're rough, you know, pivot irrigation. And, um, It's just, it's our own sprayer. We don't want to bounce it to pieces. And it only takes about a half hour to uh, empty the tank anyway. You spend more time refilling the tank than you do uh, uh, spraying. Right. So, and I help her fill because we put some pretty different concoctions of stuff together for weed control. But anyway, uh, when she drives five or six miles an hour, them 20-inch rows ain't a problem as if you're trying to drive 13 or 14 or sometimes 15. Or they Sometimes they really fly if it's a little level or field. And then by driving slower, she had some poor experiences. We used to have a pull type. You know, we put super narrow sure. tires on the tractor and all that. It worked pretty good. You know, If you don't have big eighth grade, that would be fine. works good, too. But every once in a while, with no telling, you hit up. I don't know if they're foxhole or badger holes or gopher holes that the foxes dig out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when the corn gets kind of canopying, and you hit one of them with the sprayer, the narrow tires and stuff, you can get a pretty good bounce out of that, you know, even at five, six miles an hour. Right. So we just go slower and save our machine because I don't think we will replace that machine, as long as we're farming. Yeah.
1: So, Luann, uh, you got about 3,000 acres. How many uh, acres will she put on that sprayer in a year?
2: A couple of years ago, she put about 10,000 on. Wow. Mm-hmm. Because everything you spray like twice or three times, some of it was even three times. Right. So, well, one time at the no-till conference, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago, it seemed like the theme of the whole thing was sprayers. Yeah. You know, they had all kinds of classes and roundtables on um, on sprayers. And there was one guy, I forget who the speaker was, and he says, uh, no-till spraying is probably, the the sprayer is probably the most important machine you got. right? And he said, it'll be the fastest one that'll pay for itself mm-hmm. of any of the machines. And he was talking that time two or three passes, a year on everything you farm, even if it's two passes, so you farm 1,000 acres, well, that's 2,000 acres you got to spray, so you can justify a little more on the sprayer, and, well, that's why we had a used one and was having problems with that, so that was one piece of machine that we bought new then is the the sprayer, and and that was by accident, too. Uh, We had a breakdown, and they just out here. They're from Kearney, so it's quite a ways. So they brought their service truck and they sent something with the pump. And uh, he says, well, we got a new demonstrator here in the neighborhood. Why don't we bring that over? And I said, no, don't don't you dare to bring that thing over. <laughs> well, because what we had. we went from a 90-foot boom to a 120-foot, the cab was a lot better cab. The air conditioner worked. It was a better suspension the right. tank went from 1200 to 1600 and then my wife i think we did two batches or something like that and she says well this thing
3: uh,
2: is not going to leave the place <laughs> so we we bought it and uh, i guess if she helps me do the spring or does the spraying that uh, she, she can probably have any kind of sprayer she wants <laughs> you exactly know?
0: We'll rejoin Frank Leseter and Ed Neeson in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lessiter with a little-known no-till farmer fact.
1: We go back to the early 90s, and there was a question about new no-tillers often picking the wrong colder to put on the front of their planters. There was a gentleman named Ed Meek, and he was a former University of Missouri area agronomist at Memphis, Missouri, and he said it was natural for a first-time no-tiller to want to till a narrow area where the seed will be placed. As a result, he says many first-time no-tillers often chose a three-inch or two-and-a-half-inch wide wavy colder. The problem with that is those colders toss moist soil out of the seed zone, leaving a shallow open trench. So like many no-tillers, they learned that what they started out with with colders was not always the right decision. And today we have a number of people no-tilling that don't even have colders on their planter.
0: And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Leseter and Ed Neeson.
1: Are you uh, spraying insecticides or fungicides? Not too much. We may get into
2: it a little bit more, but um, a couple of the speakers at the note tell you that, you know, like the insecticides, once you spray for an insecticide, that you're going to be spraying a lot more. You kill all the beneficials. I'm pretty cautious. And also, back to when I started, when I rented from this guy, this ground, back in the well, early 70s, late 60s, there was kind of an earworm. Thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. And uh, everybody was spraying. The co-ops were lining up three four planes, and they had, some of the guys had ideas of uh, lining up the whole township, and they just spray corn you know, from one end to the other. Anyway, then uh, when he got his share of the bill, he says, uh, he said, I'll pay this bill, but he says, you'll never do this again. Mm-hmm. He says, once you start spraying for bugs and stuff, Unless it's really bad, if you kill all the beneficial, and you're going to be spraying forever. Yeah. So I kind of went by that there. And this last year we had a bunch of, of uh, these thistle caterpillars. Sure. And um, I thought there were too many of them, and so we had a guy from the university come out. And well, our local seed corn guy says, "Oh, if you see one, you got to spray." The university guy, he come out there and. He says, you don't have near enough here to to spray here. Yeah. And he says, besides, they're starting to die. He says they got a fungicide, or a fungus is killing them from the inside out. They're, they were some dead, you know, right on the leaves.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So we didn't spray in about two or three days. The problem was gone. Yeah so we didn't spray at all, and then I asked him, I said, what about on this fungus, and you know, a lot of these fungus guys, sellers, they say that, uh, you know, there is no such thing as good fungus, you know, you got to kill it all, and I asked him, I said, well, if we would have sprayed fungus, would we kill this fungus that's killing the caterpillars, or, you know, well, he said, I can't really answer that, but he says it's a possibility, that, uh, so I'm pretty conservative, when it comes to fungicide and insecticides. Right. Uh, I I just, they, well, you don't hear less one advantage bandage of talking to some of these agronomy, agronomists from Ohio or Indiana and stuff like that. If I see them at the no-till conference once a year, that's all I'll ever see them. And that's all they'll, you know, like right. these local guys, they they're either selling something or they they don't want you to bomb out and be their fault, you know. Okay. Like that's I guess that's a plug for the no joker and also the the networking and the roundtables. Sure. You know, you, you you ain't afraid to say, well, these I did this wrong or or I got a problem here, and, and you know, like you go to a local coffee shop and. Well, you dummy wanting to spray a fungicide, you know. Yeah, right. Well, did I have to or or or, or, you know what I'm saying is, people open up more
1: right well it's like uh, i I've, I've heard people say out there be in the hall and some stranger will come up to him they don't know and the stranger will say to him at the no-to coverage did you just hear that dumb idea that that speaker just had that that will never work and the new guy who's just made says well i've been doing it just like that for 4 years and it's worked great <laughs> <laughs> so uh well uh i got a personal case
2: this last year my brother Got treated seed for the beans. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: He sprayed for this caterpillar. He sprayed a fungicide. Well, then the insecticide to kill the caterpillar. He got uh, his beans. We combined them. They all went to town, and they made 71 bushels. Wow. And we had a field that we thought matched it pretty good, but, you know, it wasn't the same field. Mm -hmm. And we had a different variety of soybeans and we didn't treat for nothing. No fungicide, no caterpillar, no seed treatment, and uh, they made 69. He says, you made money, more money than I did. And I said, well, yeah, I think so. I you put everything on it. And I said, some of that stuff, I don't know if you have to. Right. And our, we planned it, oh, it wasn't wasn't real early. It was kind of mid-season, and my seed guy then says, well, you don't need no seed treatment now no more. That's only good for two weeks, and once the temperature starts warming up for soybeans, he says you don't really need that seed treatment. Yeah. You know, some guys might. They might have some white mold or something like that that it works on. Like I said, I'm always on the more on the conservative side. Right. Because.
1: Are you buying uh, BT traits using GMO traits for insects? Insects or not?
2: First off, I don't. I very seldom ever plant corn after corn. Okay. So we don't. And if I do, then I I buy it. Uh, uh, you know, a few bags of the rootworm. Yeah. trait. Okay. You know, some kind. Right. Because I don't. I don't have nothing on my planter. No more. I do have a fertilizer tank on there. That if we could, there's something we could mix in with the fertilizer. Uh, you know, we put the fertilizer right in the trench. So if there was, you know, if we needed some insecticide in there, we we could. But as far as having boxes on the planter, especially for insecticide, no, we don't. But we're like we're mostly corn and bean rotation. Very seldom do we put a corn in. And I'd like to go to more corn and stuff like that. But with our no-tilling on corn on corn. You've got a lot more issues with the stocks, and sometimes it works really good, and then sometimes it, we've got too much trash, and you want to do it on a dry day. You don't want to do it when it's cloudy and foggy. it got to be a dry day. I
1: remember uh, so. I remember at the uh, very first National Enroll Conference in Indianapolis in uh, 1993, Howard Doster, who just passed away, he was a Purdue ag- economist, uh, made a talk on – why you should plant soybeans at the same time you do corn, and he talked about whether getting a drill or another planter really paid off. Now a few minutes ago you said you've done the same thing. You got a second planter so you can plant beans at the same time as corn, right?
2: Right. Otherwise, if we plant all the corn and then start beans, it seems like we get kind of late on the beans. Sure. And uh, theres I think the earlier planting beans helps some and there's there's even a couple guys around here that uh still plant beans before the corn
1: yeah that's that's going to be a popular uh, topic these days about the benefits of going first with soybeans in some areas well uh i guess
2: that's where i decided well if i get another planter and that planter that's why one of the reasons why i settled on 20-inch rows because i really believe the zero rows it's probably, you get more return in soybeans than corn. Mm-hmm. But if I got it the same, I can use either planter, say something happens or something. We can go with both planters in beans at first, or we can switch them both to corn. Right. Or get both with 20-inch rows in either one, we can um, we can use a, either planter for either one. Right, right. And, uh, well, now we don't, we haven't been putting starter fertilizer on. Last we put it all on with the uh, the airflow machines over winter with the co-op. Sure. Well, we're kind of sure to help on planting time, and and the, that fertilizer slows you down. And thing I got out of it, it really pays if you got um, poorer soils. But we kind of got our soils built up, and uh, we own most of the ground we farm, on, so. We feel we can now, uh, if we don't use the fertilizer this year, we can do it, you know, we could cut back next year or something or, right. or uh, that's why that instead of taking time with the, uh, on the planter, and that's weight on the planter you Some of Marion's talks are about adding, not adding weight to the planter. So, and in 20-inch rows, of the planters we do, we have to plant in some tracks sure Yeah, uh, there's no way we can move the tires and stuff to not playing in track so the weight issue and say if we run out of fertilizer if we make a, made a few rounds we can never tell the difference anyway mm-hmm. so we just put all the fertilizer on you know, the co-ops usually got a special over winter and we put the phosphate and potash and sulfur and zinc or whatever it needs We broadcast it, and while it's 20-inch rows, broadcasting, you know, it'd be better than, like, 30-inch rows, I would think. Closer to the plants.
1: Closer to the plants. Anyway, it might not be the best, but it works for us. So tell me about your corn planter. What attachments do you have on it? Well, we've got um, shark teeth. They're the narrow
2: stem. They're for, like, narrower rows they had them on the 15 inch planter i was complaining we throw the trash over into the next row right and uh, so they uh her made some uh narrower stems they called it and then we put it on and they gave me a, some of them for trying it and then they had a guy come out here and well you know, this goes back 15 or 20 years ago he took pictures of it all day it was planning and we had some other single disc wipers on there that didn't work very well at all but by narrowing that shark teeth up it worked real good and I've got the band depth control or whatever it is so they only go down so far Mm -hmm. and I, I move a little more trash probably than the average guy does and uh, I think last year we got behind landings, so we hired a neighbor kid. He had a John Deere, 15-inch something, but he didn't have no uh, openers on there at all, which some guys, you know, but anyway, then he went out in their field. And then uh, some fields we we started from one end with our planner and his the other. And we got a better stand than he did. I kind of moved all the trash and maybe some dirt, which them guys just planted right in the trash. And when the beans were coming up, uh, it would have been a good picture because you are where we planted, we got a lot better stand than he did. But in the fall, they were kind of all the same anyway. So I don't know if it, uh, you know, if you plant them too thick, well, then you got some room to lose some, I guess. So that's, but as far as those, um, like if I'd be buying another planter today, it would definitely have those shark teeth residue yeah. managers on. They're kind of sharp when they're new. Ours are getting warm a little bit, but guys said, oh, that don't make any difference. Mm-hmm. They've they still got life in them yet. Right. And uh, one thing I like about the 20-inch rows, we got uh gearing-off head and we bought a case head. Mm-hmm. Uh, either one. With 20-inch rows, say you've got a waterway going down through the field that you cross with the planter, but you don't want to cross, or during the year it washes out a little bit. Sure. And you don't want to cross it with the combine. You can go alongside of those ditches. You can't curve too much, but say you're going at a 25-degree angle or, uh, or 45. Right. Uh, and go a little slower. It's like an all-directional uh, non head. You know, for opening up fields, you can just. It works better in the corners too. that yeah, you know, like a the old thirty-six inch rows. That would really slop the corn down in the corner when you was going on an angle. You know, it, right, right. And this twenty inches. Uh, that's the advantage to the twenty inches. Of course, fifteen would be probably even better yet. But uh I kind of like the twenty for spraying.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, then what else I got? We did, like I said, we got fertilizer. On the planters, but we don't, we haven't been using them for the last few years, just to, uh, you know, have the co-op,
3: put
2: the fertilizer on over winter, uh, dry, and then we also have the co-op, we'll spread some uh, nitrogen,
3: 32%,
2: after the corn, after we plant, with a herbicide, Mm -hmm. just because, um. We trying to farm a little bit out. We can't. We can't get it all done on time. So we, and we figured that fertilizer at thirty two percent. You put thirty forty gallons an acre on, and uh, you know they haul it out. It you know they got guys to haul it out, which we had to haul it ourselves. And we just uh, we figured there's one place that we could cut back a little bit. Right. And uh, so I guess to answer the rest of your question. That should have been when uh you were talking about how many acres we spray with the sprayer that see when then when the co op does some of the fertilizer and stuff, we cut the acres with our sprayer. Okay. Yeah, which right. uh, you know, might not be the most efficient either, but but we can't really do it all and then when we hire the co op to spray, they get a guy we get a guy with it, you know. Right. And uh, well at that time then you know, they go with the big job. Uh, big tires, you know, the corn is either not up yet or up about an inch or two. Right. That uh you know, it don't don't hurt. Right. You can knock it out but it comes back. Yeah, it comes back. So um you know they ain't gonna do no damage. The only thing is you gotta be careful so they get in the right fields and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> but uh so we don't do quite as many acres with the sprayer as we tried to do a few years. We're down to like maybe 6,000 acres a year with the sprayer. Which, but if you kind of figure that out, I think once the sprayer is like paid for, it still works pretty good. All right.
1: So uh, uh, what corn and bean populations are typical for you? Um, I try
2: 130 once in a while, 140. And then if I get real late in the season, I go 150 for soybeans. They got some soybean stays in the summer I like to go to. But their official recommendation for timely planted soybeans up from there and then the corn we're about 132 or so on the irrigated and about 27 or 28 on the dry land and um, our seed goring guy he says at first he was a couple years ago he was more got back more that we were overplanting, that their varieties are real flex here and stuff like that that we don't need it that thick but these he said, well, even on those flexier hybrids, a little more is a little better and until he's I but I wouldn't plan a hundred and I mean that thirty four thousand, you know, in our country. Um that's just too thick here. You well know, yeah. we're more dry land. And um but on the good irrigated I go hundred and thirty two and then um on the tri is about 128. Mm-hmm. One guy told me if they're tipped back a lot you're planting too thick and if they ain't tipped at all then you're not planting thick enough you know of course you know we sometimes we get heckish good growing years and then you know it's got a nice blunt end around on the end of the year you know it's nicely filled out all the way but that's a sign that you weren't thick enough
3: nice. but
2: that's for that year if you get a really good year you know there's a neighbor oh down by north bend he was um he went into the 15 inch rows for a while but he only stayed a couple of years but he you know, was always playing like 34 36 and I think he went up to 38 on some air and it, it just turned out to be a disaster with his stock quality and stuff like that that uh, he was too thick, so right. I like, I think I'm in the kind of the middle of the ballpark. I, I'm comfortable with the way my looks at, a, at the population that I'm, you know, the, the seed guys like to sell more seed.
3: Right.
1: Well, we've had a, a great conversation here today, but I want to ask you a couple more questions here. One of the things I've always been impressed with you at the National Rotoage Conference is... You've come, and, and a number of times Luann has come with you, and she doesn't go to the woman's program. She goes to a different session than you do. Now, some people come with another a father or son, and you'll see them sitting in the same session. But I've always been impressed that you two broke up and kind of picked up twice the knowledge that you could share with each other later. Well, that's
2: the idea. No, she has gone to, you know, sometimes when there's nothing going on that she's interested in, sure. she went with the women's
3: mm-hmm.
2: stuff. But this
1: last year, well, she skipped a couple of years because she was kind of on babysitting. Right. Grandkids, you know? grandkids are more important than no-till. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been a great hour I've spent with you and a fascinating conversation. And, I, and the thing I like about you is you're a really practical farmer. You've seen the value of not investing in grain systems or in equipment and using what money you had to buy more land and expand. And you've seen the value of no-till in cutting your equipment investment. And uh, you've done very well. And I think no tills not only help you make money, but it's help to you expand your acreage. Am I pretty right on that? That's
2: basically Now, I'm sure there's guys that that put up nice green setups that there's no way they would give it up or go without it. You right, know, right, right. You know, I guess you know we we could both be right. Exactly right. Maybe they, they they really like playing the bases on the green and can do a lot better job of marketing than I can, because I'm, I'm kind of limited to what I can do. And then then guys that buy uh, brand new equipment all the time, mm-hmm. they say, well, their repair bill is probably a fraction of mine. Right. You know, because I get some pretty hefty repair bills once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there was a guy by Ames, Nebraska, uh, he was a pretty good size farmer. He died of a heart attack, I think, a couple of years ago. But he, we had a conversation one time, and he says We've done it always. He says, We traded combines every year. Mm-hmm. Then for some time, they went and kept them for a long, long time. And then he said, We leased combines. And uh, he said, But by the time you're all done, he says, Harvest costs you about so much money. And he says, I... 'Cause I think the all three options, leasing, trading quick, or running them forever, is I think it's all about the same. He says it's whatever you want to do, whatever you're comfortable with. They all got their drawbacks. Exactly.
1: Well then there's other farmers that wouldn't like the idea of having to haul grain thirty five miles like you are, but you're making it work.
2: Well, that's true. We don't we don't maybe combine as many acres in a day mm-hmm. because we got a haul and we're we're That's why, well, we got uh, four semis, so we can go, uh, you know, if they're talking a little shower of rain for the next day, well, we can fill everything up. Right. And we uh, we get quite a bit, especially in soybeans, we can do quite a bit, Uh, you know, like in the evening after the elevator closes, and then the next morning, if it's tough, I'll jump in a truck and... Right. You know, uh, with our other boys here from Colorado we can take all four trucks in at once, you know, the next morning. Right.
1: So how and many how many bushels of soybeans would you have on those four trucks total? Pretty close to four thousand bushels. Right. Wow,
2: that's great. So if they get fifty bushels, well, now we're we're doing better the last couple of years. But a few years ago, fifty bushels an acre, that's eighty acres we can combine after the elevator closed. Right, right. Uh, so well we got two combines. I bought another used combine a couple of years ago for, for soybeans. Mm-hmm. And um, and well, we did buy another corn head, and well, if you got used stuff, one is going to be broke down a little bit. It's not that we'll run them both 100% of the time. If we can run 150%, right. I think we'd be doing pretty good, and it still right. would be worth having. It's just
1: a lot nicer to have an extra combine around. Exactly, all right. Hey, Ed, this has been great. I'm really impressed with your operation and how you've watched the cost and made no-till work. Take care and thanks very much. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Okay.
0: Thanks for tuning into this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry.
1: Question came up, which states have the highest no-till adoption rate? I would say it's probably Delaware and Maryland. They don't have a huge number of farm acres, but they're really high in the percentage of the land that is no-tilled. Then you get into some other states which have a huge acreage like Indiana, Iowa, Nebraska, and the percentage rate is not as high there, but they have a lot more no-till acres in some of the smaller states. But we've got a ways to go too. When you look in South America, we've got Argentina, which is no-tilling 93% of their row crop land. So we've got plenty of room left for growth.
0: Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Ed Neeson for today's conversation highlighting some of the benefits of no-till. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at no-tillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lessiter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlock. Thank you for listening.